0: This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. The new Consumer Price Index report is out this morning. And spoiler alert, the record high inflation that we've been seeing, it's slowing down. Here's President Biden.
1: The data is clear. Even though inflation is high and major economies around the world is coming down in
0: America month after month, giving families some real breathing room. So what should you do with that extra breathing room? Is now the time to consider saving or investing? Our next guest has some money tips and tricks for you. And we want to hear from you as well. What questions do you have about spending, saving, investment, or retirement? Give us a call at 866-915-WBEZ. That is 866-915-WBEZ. WBEZ and ask us your personal finance questions. And joining us now in studio is Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning at the firm Morningstar. She's also the author of the book, 30 Minute Money Solutions, a step-by-step guide to managing your finances. Welcome back to Reset, Christine. Sasha, it's so great to be here. Thank you. So let's first get your reaction to this morning's inflation report. Any, any surprises for you?
1: Well, we were expecting to see inflation slowing down a little bit. And one thing we've seen is a handoff from really high inflation in the price of goods, uh, gas prices especially, to services. So we're continuing to see some pretty high numbers in the services space. So healthcare care services, for example. Hotels are high as well. And that's pretty intuitive because those are some of the main areas where workers in those jobs, in hotels, in healthcare facilities, hospitals, and so forth, have been able to swing mm-hmm. higher wages.
0: Yeah. So if you had to give sort of a, an overall takeaway from this morning's report, what would you say it means for the average consumer?
1: So directionally, we're headed in in the right direction, but this is still a pretty high number. Obviously, we had all gotten a little bit complacent about that very low inflation that persisted for the better part of the past decade. We're still at over 6%. We'll be looking for these numbers to slow down a little bit. There may be some impact for, for interest rates, so we've seen the Federal Reserve very aggressively increasing interest rates over the past year. It appears that the Fed is going to take its foot off the gas a little bit. We'll still see some higher rates come online in 2023. Mm -hmm. But the pace should slow from what we saw last year. Well,
0: speaking of 2023, economists have been warning about a possible recession. The R word. Months and months now we've been hearing this. In fact, this week, the World Bank warned that the global economy will come, quote, perilously close to a recession this year. So does today's report ease any of those worries at all?
1: Not really. The The Federal Reserve and other central bankers outside the U.S. are walking a tightrope where many of them are increasing interest rates. But the risk that you court when you do that is that you could over-accelerate interest rates and that could slow down the economy to the point that we, we venture into recession. We're still a long ways from that. One thing that I am really happy to see is that the jobs market is still very strong, even though we've seen some pockets of weakness in the tech- Technology sector a little bit recently in the financial services sector. By and large, workers are in a strong position and can and should be negotiating higher wages because they're in a good spot. Yeah.
0: Do you think that the U.S. is now past the worst of the this drastic price increases? Is that safe to say yet?
1: It's it's tough to say that this is that the worst is over, but I I do think that this recent inflation report is a step in the right direction.
0: Yeah. Well, when you think, uh, or when you look at the current economy, Christine, where we are with inflation and the the interest rates being high, folks are tightening their belts, what are the biggest challenges you think facing consumers right now?
1: Well, rising interest rates are certainly a headwind for consumers. We've, in, in fact, increasingly seen that consumers are relying on credit cards to pay their bills, and that's worrisome from the standpoint of the fact that we've seen credit card interest rates tick up quite significantly. We also saw consumers during the pandemic in in sort of that pent-up demand part of the pandemic where no one could do anything. Yes. (laughs) People were able to save, and we saw a very nice uptick in savings rates during that period. We've seen that people are plowing through those savings, that they have depleted some of those... uh, emergency funds that they were able to put aside mm-hmm. and so that the combination of higher credit card balances and depleted emergency savings is a little bit worrisome from the standpoint of consumer finance.
0: Yeah. A reminder to listeners, you can join the conversation and get your questions answered. Our number is 866-915-WBEZ. Again, what are your thoughts about spending and saving and investing and retiring? Give us your questions at 866 915 WBEZ. Let's jump to the phones, Christine. Rose is waiting from Evanston. Hey, Rose, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. What's your question?
1: Uh, So, I am looking to become a first time homeowner, and with the interest rates climbing everywhere, the question is now before the interest rates keep climbing, or wait and hope for a miracle? Uh, what's the wisdom right now? So the worst may be over in terms of mortgage interest rates. I would bear in mind that typically we see a little bit of a seesaw effect or a teeter-totter effect, whatever you want to call it, with home prices and interest rates. So you may have noticed, and it's very dependent on the community where you're looking for a home, but you may have noticed that prices have maybe leveled off a little bit from where they were a year ago. That's because of rising interest rates. And I would stay laser-focused on that because – You know, that's the irrevocable part of your home purchase, the the price you pay for that home. Interest rates, even if you happen to buy in at a high point, you you may have the opportunity to refinance that mortgage down the line. So I would stay focused on home prices. If you've seen some easing, that should be your major catalyst for deciding whether it's a good time to, to dive in. And then, you know, I think that sometimes people get themselves overly caught up in the financial aspects of homeownership. Mm-hmm. The the real issue is, is this a good time for you to be a homeowner from your own personal finance uh, perspective, but also just sort of your lifestyle perspective? I would let that be in the driver's seat in terms of the decisions you make from here. Thank you, Rose. And we'll talk more about in-
0: investing later in-, in the program. But I, I want to stick with spending and budgeting right now. What are your What are the biggest mistakes, Christine, that that you would say people make when it comes
1: to spending? And I have a feeling that you're going to say that we all need to create a budget. Well, we do, and there are some great uh, programs for doing a budget. I love a program called You Need a Budget. Yes, Um, YNAB. (laughs) Yes, YNAB has its super fans, but that's a really good one. Have a budget. But most of all, I love this idea, and I think we've talked about this before, Sasha, Mindful spending. So being really conscious about whether your expenditures are delivering you happiness. And, uh, you know, not getting caught up in this environment where you're just sort of spending in line with your peers or your neighbors or whatever the case might be, really trying to be thoughtful about how you're spending your money. Yeah. Um, but certainly this the fact that we've had high inflation creates challenges for budgeting. Um, so the key thing is just to document what you're spending. And then I also love the idea of setting a savings target to the extent that you're able to save, setting that savings target and then offering automating those contributions on an ongoing basis. And that kind of just removes you from the picture a little bit. That's a good,
0: good tip, setting that target. Because I I don't find that I do that. I just kind of throw money in the pot. And it's like, if I have sort of a target, a number that I want to hit, then that's going to motivate me even more. What do you say to couples talking about budgeting right now? You know, how do they do it without each person getting defensive? Because that happens too.
1: It does. And couples are navigating two sets of priorities. Uh, Chances are you won't sync up completely on where you want to spend your money. So it seems like healthy couples have regular ongoing communication about this. I even know couples who set up On ongoing meetings, like maybe a a quarterly meeting where they're talking about their shared financial priorities. They might have individual financial priorities as well, and you want to make sure that your spending addresses those too. But communication is the name of the game.
0: Yeah. Is it time to put off big expenses?
1: I don't think so. I would use your own household situation, your own employment situation to determine what you do. And of course, your own household financial wherewithal. But it seems too much of a blanket statement to say everyone should cease spending right now. No more cars. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's got an opinion
0: about credit card spending. So I got to ask you about that. Some people are afraid to even pick up a credit card or look at a credit card. Others say, well, you absolutely have to have one if you want to maintain a good credit score. What's the deal?
1: Ideally, you would have one credit card at least. Probably one is plenty for most of us, one credit card. And the goal should be to pay off that balance every month if you possibly can. And that goal is more important today given where we're seeing interest rates going. So as a credit card borrower, rising interest rates are not your friend, obviously. And they make it really difficult to justify putting – any investment money aside, as long as you have credit card debt with that very high interest rate attached to it, well, there's no way, there's nothing that you could earn in the market that could possibly override or or beat that very high interest rate attached to your credit card. So I think to the extent that consumers are wary of credit card debt, I think that's a healthy thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, we, on the program a few months ago, we, we talked about how, you know, thanks to inflation, Americans are in enormous credit card debt, something around nine hundred billion dollars. So, do we just need to be smarter shoppers?
1: Well, potentially so. I, I, you know, I do think it gets back to mindful spending, and the other point I would make on the on the from the standpoint of. of credit card debt is that it's not the only debt that many households are wrestling with. So obviously mortgage debt, but many, many young households especially have enormous amounts of student loan debt. And I know you've talked about that topic Mm -hmm. on the program. Plenty uh, of times. Plenty of times. Um, So uh, bear in mind the other forms of debt that you have. And all of those are unfortunately a headwind to your household financial wherewithal.
0: You talked about savings and, and targets. You know, With interest rates rising on savings accounts, Christine, it, it's not too bad to have
1: a, a chunk of change
0: in a high-yield savings account right? Absolutely.
1: Shop around. I think we had all gotten quite complacent with our savings where it's like, well, what's the difference between 0.25 and 0.5? It was very hard to get excited about shopping around. We're all sort of content to live with whatever our bank or investment institution was paying us. Now you can pick up some really attractive, safe FDIC insured, uh, forms of savings deposits. Yeah. So, so be a careful consumer in this space.
0: If someone is interested in setting up a high-yield savings account, where do you recommend they look?
1: I really like the online savings banks. And the reason is that, you know, they don't have bricks and mortar institutions mm-hmm. to pay for. Um, so that would be my first step. We often see the highest yields there. We've also seen money market mutual funds begin to offer some some fairly high yields. So I was looking just the other day at an investments money market mutual fund. It was at, the, at Four and a half percent. So, those can be attractive sources of, of savings. Just bear in mind that the money market mutual fund will not carry those FDIC protections. In practice, they've been pretty safe, but they're not FDIC insured. A reminder if you're just
0: tuning in, we are talking to Christine Benz, who's director of personal finance and retirement planning at the firm Morningstar. She's also the author of the book 30 Minute Money Solutions. And with the new consumer price index report out this morning, we are talking all things money. You can call and get your questions answered at eight six 915 wbez Let's jump back to the phones, Christine. We've got a couple of folks waiting. Here is Dita from the North Side. Hey, Dita, welcome to Reset. Yes, good morning. I am a part-time employee and nearly working two years at a new business that opened two years ago. And when I was hired, as a part-time, I was offered 401k. Okay. But what was withheld from me, I don't know if it's on purpose or not, was that the 1,000 hours accumulated to make me eligible for it have to be accumulated within one year, not within a date of hire. That means that this past year, 2022, I only worked nine hundred and sixty-four hours. Hmm. Christine, oh. that's
1: tricky. So, four hundred and one K plans have different bylaw bylaws. It depends on the employer um all i can say is you should sit down with your employer work with them to ensure that you can meet the requirement if if in fact you've determined that you want to contribute to that plan sit down and make sure that you can try to hit that hour requirement um to in in order to qualify yourself to contribute to the plan. But I also would say, do your due diligence on the quality of the plan. They're they're all over the map. Oftentimes, smaller employers, unfortunately, tend to field higher cost 401k plans, which is not to say that you should automatically avoid them, but you may be better off using, say, a Roth IRA, um, if you can, and you can perhaps get around the headwinds, the the higher operational costs that sometimes go with those smaller 401k plans. So do your homework on that 401k plan quality before assuming that it's necessarily a good fit for you.
0: Let's squeeze in another 401k-related question before we take a pause here. Here's Gavin in Logan Square. Hey, Gavin.
1: Hey, thanks for taking my call. Sure.
0: What's your yeah, question? so another 401k question um, for recent grads who to say
1: worked a job for close to a year, have a little bit saved up in one 401k, and recently switched jobs. Um, when does it make sense to roll that 401k over,
0: and when does it make sense to keep the two separate for the sake of diversity?
1: Yeah, really good question, Gavin, and one that people wrestle with a lot because we all uh, we're we're living in a world of job hoppers. So oftentimes it makes sense to roll over the old 401k to an IRA of some kind, an, an individual retirement account. And the benefit of that versus the 401k is that, and it, it's very much dependent on the employer, but sometimes the 401ks have higher administrative costs attached to them than would be the case just setting up an IRA, a Roth IRA on your own with a, you know, a Vanguard or Schwab or Fidelity or some firm like that. So do your homework on what those... 401ks are charging you in terms of fees. But I always say if you can aggregate those old 401ks in a single IRA, the big benefit of that is you get away from some of those administrative costs and also just you can streamline your financial life a little bit because I think many of us end up with these little piles of money here and there and it just can be difficult to keep track of what you have.
0: This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking about all those burning personal finance questions that you might have about budgeting, investing and retirement. We're still taking your calls at eight six six nine one 915 wbez Our expert today, Christine Benz, director of personal finance and retirement planning at the firm Morningstar. And she's the author of the book, 30 Minute Money Solutions. Let's get back into it, Christine. So many questions for you a big blind spot for folks is investing as we know how to invest where to invest how much what if you know nothing about
1: investing how do you start start with your goals because that should be the main is the main determinant of what you should invest in so if you have a very short-term goal maybe it's a home down payment you know, and you'd like to buy that home within the next two years, say. Well, you have no business investing in stocks or cryptocurrency or anything like that, even though the return potential might be higher. If you have the funds, you should invest in something safer. So the good news is we talked about how yields have gone up, interest rates have gone up. That's good news for people saving and safe stuff. So if you have, say, a two-year time horizon, I think you should be in safer investments in a high-yield savings account or a money market mutual fund, if you have sort of an intermediate term goal, maybe anywhere from 2 to 10 years, Mm -hmm. there you could think about holding bonds because bonds do entail a little bit more risk, but also a little bit more return potential. And there, I would say, use either individual treasury bonds or use some sort of a bond mutual fund. And then if you have a goal that's like 10 years into the future or more, so maybe you're a 35-year-old and you're saving for retirement. Well, the bulk of your portfolio should be in stocks okay? because stocks over many, many periods in market history have higher returns than safer assets. But the trade-off is that there are more fluctuations Along the way. That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, my def- heart can't take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're nice and young, though. So, you should, to the extent that you have long term assets for your retirement, you should have. Those stock assets, because historically they have had better returns, even though that volatility has been higher. But use your goals as a starting point and then back into what might be appropriate assets to invest in from there. Yeah.
0: Well, I want to talk about passive income while you're here. First, remind us what that is. What's passive income?
1: So in contrast with earned in the from wage income that we get from our jobs, passive income would be from other sources. So it can come from a variety of sources. Some of the investments that I just talked about mm-hmm. kick off passive income. So if you have stocks that pay dividends, well, that's a form of passive income. If you have bonds that pay interest or, or savings accounts that pay interest, passive income. A really common form of passive income that people talk about is owning rental properties. Right. So owning real estate where you have renters and they're paying you rent and you have a little bit of a differential between what it costs you to own that property and service it and um, I feel like that's grown so much over the
0: last few years and we're seeing so many TV shows about yes, real estate investing. It's it's just
1: become such a a thing It has. It has. And there are people who also might invest in properties that in turn they flip and sell to another buyer. So there are varieties Mm -hmm. of earning real estate income. It's a popular form of passive income. I will say it's not for everyone. So if you aren't cut out to be a, you know, a landlord who's on the hook for being called at at two in the morning because the toilet's overflowing uh, and you don't have the (laughs) financial wherewithal to hire that property caretaker. Yeah. Don't don't get into that business. You might look to other easier sources of passive income like some of the investments that we talked about like like bonds, like dividend paying stocks for yeah. example. I mean and
0: and sticking with with real estate, I mean in the past I have found it difficult just to get that jump start on investing in real estate just be, you know because it's a great way to build wealth as we've talked about and and you know make money in your sleep kind of thing, but you kind of you have to already be in a good financial position to do it, right? You've already got to be managing your debt well. You've got to already have those emergency funds.
1: It's nerve wracking. Well, absolutely, you need to be in good financial. S- a good financial spot to embark on this. But the other issue is, and this gets a little bit in the weeds, but many people who own rental properties own their own place where they live. And so the thing that worries me a little bit when people overextend themselves into the rental income space is that oftentimes those rental properties are in the same geographic locale. All of those investments are beholden to a similar set of forces. So if the Chicago property market, for example, falls off a cliff, not saying it will. Um, knock that on me- wood. <laughs> knock on wood. That means that you've put too many eggs in that basket. So I like the idea of, to the extent that people have rental properties, be looking at some other investment assets in addition to those rental properties so that you're diversifying a little bit. So if you have rental properties, also look at investments in stocks, investments in bonds, and so forth.
0: You're a retirement planner as well, Christine. And just last week, President Biden signed into law some of the biggest changes for retirement savings that we've seen in 15 years. So talk about the law, Secure 2.0.
1: Yeah, this is a pretty big uh, piece of legislation, 90-some provisions in the Secure 2.0. But a few of the headlines that, that jump out at me is required minimum distributions, which older listeners will be familiar with. These are uh, mandatory distributions that you have to take from traditional IRA accounts. Once you hit age now 73, the age for those distributions has moved out a little bit. So it's moved up from 72 to 73 starting this year. In uh, 10 years from now, it'll go up to age 75. So this is something that affluent uh, spenders, affluent retirees love that they like that they aren't on the hook for taking these distributions, which are taxable. So that's one piece of it. Another piece makes it a little easier starting in 2024 for 401k savers to access their funds in case of an, of an emergency. So there's a provision that will allow. Uh, savers in 401k plans to tap, I think, up to $1,000 in their 401ks um, and avoid what would normally be a 10% penalty Mm -hmm. on that premature withdrawal. So few provisions there. And then another big piece of it is to try to figure out how we can help people who work somewhere where there is no retirement plan on offer. And that's a big component of our workers. So roughly 50% of workers have no employer provided retirement plan. So the idea would be to make it a little easier for some of those smaller employers to offer those plans to their employees and to opt them in automatically. yeah. And what we see with that, that automatic opt-in where you get enrolled, whether you like it or not, we see that people tend to stick with that okay. oftentimes. They will be able to say, no, I don't want this, but uh, they will be auto-enrolled into those plans. So I think that it's a step in the right direction for a cohort of our population that is not being served well by our current retirement system. Let's stick with retirement questions. We've got a couple of callers
0: with those. First up, Roosevelt in Calumet Heights. Hey, welcome to the program. Thank you, thank you. This is a quick question. I am nearing retirement within the next three to five years. I'm an educator, and I I have, of course, have a pension, but I've only saved into a four hundred three four hundred three b, not an IRA. I'm asking, is it would it be more beneficial beneficial to me to roll that over? It's it, in 29 years, so it's quite a lot, but roll it over instead of keeping it in 403B. That's my big dilemma. I, I don't know what to do.
1: Well, Roosevelt, I can't give you a specific advice on on what to do, but one thing we know about 403Bs in contrast with 401Ks, for a number of reasons, oftentimes those are pretty high-cost plans. And sometimes we even see annuities inside of 403Bs, which can entail even more in terms of ongoing costs. So... It can make sense to roll over, especially if you're in a higher-cost 403B. One resource I would direct your attention to is a site called 403BYs.org. It's uh, an educational resource for educators like yourself about how to make smart decisions about their 403Bs. So check out 403BYs. There's lots of good stuff there. They've got a podcast, uh, all with an eye toward helping educators, because 403 b 403Bs, frankly, kind of stink in many cases, and uh, they need more scrutiny. Let's hear now from
0: George in West Rogers Park. Hi, George. What's your question? Hi. Good morning. Um, I have a high-end problem. I'm a small business owner, self-employed, work from home, and I had an incredibly good year last year in that I was able to bank a good five figures in savings from profit uh what can i do and i'm also in my late 50s and i understand there's a way to put money into an investment account that avoids uh self-employment tax or did i get that wrong
1: I would get some financial advice on that because there are an array of self-employment accounts that you can use, um, but sort of fitting the right one for your situation really does depend on the type of employer, the, the type of business you have. So I would get some financial advice. Certainly, there are some great investment options, retirement savings options for uh, self-employed people for small business owners. And the nice thing about them is that the contribution limits oftentimes are more generous than is the case for rank-and-file workers who are using 401k plans. But in order to sort of align the best sort of self-employment plan for your situation, I I would get some financial advice. And, you know, one thing I would make on the topic of financial advice is that you can hire an hourly financial advisor. I think people sometimes think you can. And I love that way of paying for advice because you can kind of get a a second opinion on a specific... It's like Exactly. Exactly. Well, I've often said there's no reason that people should be paying for financial advice in a different way than they might pay their accountant or their attorney. I really like the hourly model. Yeah. And you think everyone needs a financial advisor? Not everyone, but certainly with specific questions like this... Or people who are on the cusp of retirement, I think that's a particularly opportune time to get a second set of eyes on your plan. Yeah. Let's quickly
0: talk about college savings. If you have something like a 529 college savings plan, would you su- suggest regular, smaller payments over time? I know some people will do like direct deposit from each paycheck.
1: I love that. That's a beautiful way to invest, no matter what you're investing in, whether it's a 529 or in your own retirement savings account. Set up that automatic investment plan. Start low so that it's manageable within your household, but set it up so that that money's coming right out of your bank account. And the good news about those sorts of setups is that once you've set it up, you're very unlikely to override it. You certainly can override it and say, no, that's too much. I want to back off of this. But it's a great way to enforce discipline. One point I would make to college savers is, I know there's this sort of uh, intuitive pull to want to set aside funds for college savings. And it's so, so important. But don't starve your own retirement savings at the same time. I think Mm. sometimes households overdo it where they overfund perhaps the 529 and don't pay enough attention to their own own retirement. You're talking to me there, Christine. I mean,
0: (laughs) how are parents supposed to figure out how much to save for college? I'm asking for a mom of two.
1: Well, I have a great book to recommend. Uh, one is called "How" it's called "How to Pay for College" by Ann Garcia. Okay, it's I think one of the best resources on this topic. Um, but you're multitasking, so I would say to try to do a little bit of both. And then just get familiar with the various options that you might have for paying for college beyond your own savings. So I know some households pay out of their own cash flows in those college years. They might, you know, be able to pay a little bit toward tuition in those years. And then just investigate the whole great world of merit-based scholarships. It's super interesting to me how savvy parents, savvy families can really extract a lot of funds from merit scholarships. Just a couple seconds, Christine.
0: Final words from you. It sounds like overall, set a goal and go from there.
1: Exactly. And another key point and something I evangelize all about uh, all all the time in my work is just keeping things simple. It's a complicated world. Your investments don't need to be. So I like the idea of very low-cost, broad market index funds or exchange-traded funds. Find a high-yield savings account. Don't overcomplicate your life. Love that. Christine Benz is Director of Personal Finance and Retirement
0: Planning with the firm Morningstar. She's also the author of the book, 30-Minute Money Solutions, a step-by-step guide to managing your finances. You've given us so much to think about. Thank you so much for stopping by, Christine. Thank you so much for the good questions.